Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. My name is Molly Hooper, a longtime Capitol Hill reporter, and I'm taking you off camera beyond the halls of Congress to hear my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, and behind the scenes. On today's episode, I talk with John Yarmuth, who is chairman of the House Budget Committee. Yarmuth represents Kentucky's Louisville-based 3rd District. He was elected to Congress in 2006, which was a very big year for Democrats. It's when they won back the majority in Congress, and Nancy Pelosi was elected Speaker for the first time. Yarmuth is a former journalist and a candid lawmaker. We chat about the smaller-than-expected House Democratic Caucus, how his bourbon caucus actually influences policy, the cohesiveness of Kentucky's congressional delegation, and what reconciliation means. Really. If you enjoy what you hear, please share Article 1 with a friend or colleague and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the conversation. I'm here. Hey. Oh my gosh. It, it, it sort of feels like a Democratic uh, remote hearing almost. Like, can you hear me? <laughs> you Are hear you me? there? Oh my, have you, what, what experience, what has been your experience with remote hearings? Um, we, I think we've done three. Uh-huh. And they, all went, they all went really well. And the, the one thing that I observed and um, I've talked to a couple other chairmen about it. Uh-huh. And they said the same thing. That is people don't showboat as much. I've heard that as well, which I mean, from a reporter's perspective, as, 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 a, as a journalist yourself, can be a good thing. And you know, not as much of a good thing. Because sometimes you like to hear, <laughs> sometimes the fireworks are kind of nice. But it also is good because you can get to the sort of the meat and potatoes of what's going on and how people really feel. Which That's is- right. Yeah, but it's gone well. And we've had very little technical difficulty. So on, yeah. on that note, let me just get your take on this incoming class of freshmen. What do you think? How many of them? What are there, four or five? I don't, I don't even know. No, so we have um, two from New York. I know that. Uh, one from St. Louis. Two from North Carolina. Right. That's five. Do we have any others? I'm not sure. I, I guess maybe what's your take on the next Congress, the makeup of the next Congress in the House specifically? Well, it's going to be, um, it's going to be very difficult to get anything done. It's going to be very difficult for us to get 218 votes for most anything. So, you know, it's going to, Nancy's going to have a very tough job. Well, she always seems to have a tough job, but she seems to do it well. And this is something that I've been learning about, you know, doing these interviews with lawmakers like this. There's a lot more bipartisanship in the House than people even know about. And you seem like you reach out to the other side, to the opposite side of the aisle. Where do you think that you can actually make deals with Republicans moving forward? Well, I, I think, you know, having, having been involved in the immigration effort in 2013, I still think there's a possibility to do that. Infrastructure is the obvious one. Beyond that, I'm not exactly sure. Well, tell me about manufacturing, because one thing that we've heard over this past year, the big issue has been not enough American manufacturers are able to produce the, the PPE or whatever it is for, right. for whatever reason. Um, and I have talked to lawmakers who said the key right now is to start manufacturing in the United States, break down the barriers to manufacturing here, and also to make sure that we are doing business with allies of the U.S. government, like Mexico, finding more manufacturers in Mexico, Vietnam, which is interesting, but places like that as opposed to all of our business dealings with China. And I know that you've done, you've been big on manufacturing in the past. So tell me, do you think you could see deals coming together on manufacturing? I think that's probably a good area to, where there is some potential. I think Biden on the medical side, Biden seems, looks like he's going to do a lot with executive orders. I'd support that, but it'd be nice if he maybe reached out to the other side and see if we could do that legislatively first. If, if there were an opportunity to cooperate, that would set a good tone. Do you think he'll be able to do this? I think you're in a very fascinating position. Number one, because you're the budget committee chairman. Okay. (laughs) Number two, you're a member of the Kentucky delegation, which also has Mitch McConnell as a member. (laughs) 
we've been hearing these stories about how great Joe Biden works with Mitch McConnell, but the dynamics haven't been in the past what they are now, what they could be, because we still don't know what's going on with the Senate. Right. How do you think that relationship will unfold going forward? And do you think that you know, Biden, since he does have such a background in legislation and legislative business, he'll be able to make those deals that maybe other previous presidents haven't been. I, I think certainly the potential is there for him to be much more effective than others. Uh, but, you know, Mitch's pro first priority is going to be to assuming that he keeps the majority uh, is going to be to maintain that majority and nothing's going to change that. So whatever he sees legislatively that's in furtherance of that objective, that's what he'll do, regardless of how much he likes Biden. You know, I know that the congressional delegations from the different states usually have weekly meetings or monthly meetings, and, and they're relatively close. How close is the Kentucky delegation? Because before I get into that, let's just say that you have Rand Paul, Rand Paul's a senator, Tom Massey, Hal Rogers, former Appropriations Committee chairman. I mean, you've, and of course, Mitch McConnell yourself, um, James Comer, you, and Brett Guthrie. You have a very seemingly ideologically diverse group of folks um, representing the state yeah. of Kentucky. How often do you guys get together and how closely do you work on legislation? Uh, we never get together as a group. Really? Has, hasn't happened since uh, Ben Chandler was in the House. So that, and that was when he left in 2012. He, he was defeated in 2012. So there has never been a meeting since then. Um, we, we do show up at certain events together, like celebrations of bourbon and that kind of thing. But, but we do work together on a lot of things. Andy Barr and I work together on, on horse racing stuff. Um, right. Jamie, Jamie and I commute together. So we're, we're talking on a weekly basis. We're, we're very good friends. Really? And um, yeah, Jamie's a great guy. Remember, I worked with Jamie on some bipartisan stuff when he was still ag commissioner in Kentucky. I was in the house on hemp and some other stuff. Hemp is a big issue in Kentucky. It's a big deal. So, uh, and Brett, Brett and I get along really well. Thomas Macy get along really well. You know, Thomas, Thomas is nuts, but he's, 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 a, he's a very nice Terrific guy, very, you know, very funny. You know, I kid him all the time. I have a picture in my phone of his Tesla plugged into the Canon garage. He has a Tesla? He has a Tesla. Tesla plugged into the, to the government power. His license plate, we have what, what we call Friends of Coal license plate. You, know, uh -huh. you can pay extra for it. So he has a Friends of Coal license plate. The license number is no feds, N-O-F-E-D-S. And it's plugged into the government power supply. And he laughs about it too. But that's awesome. I didn't know that. This is what this is great for. You learn little bits about people. Yeah. That's hysterical. And, and he's totally his home, he's totally off the grid. He's also geothermal, solar, everything. Wow, so, I didn't know that about him. Yeah, he, you know, he's an MIT grad. He has like 30 patents. Well, <laughs> yes, I was gonna say he's he's very intelligent. And you know, I remember talking to him early on, and I go, well which committees would you want to be on? And he was saying something like he wouldn't mind being on, oh, which committee was the post office, the oversight and government reform, oversight. because the post office is in the constitution. You know, he, he isn't, he doesn't mind paying money for things that have been specified in the constitution. He's like, I'm okay with that. Everything else I just don't want to pay for. But if it's in the constitution, I'm there. And I, I thought, well, yeah. he knows no, what he's, he's for. He's a character. When he, when he came to Congress, one day I was away from the office and I came back to the office and Julie, my chief of staff, said, Thomas Massey came by the office while you were gone. He wanted to say hello. I said, oh, I'm, it's too bad. But I missed him. He's, and she said, I'm so disappointed. I wanted to hate him so much, but he is such a nice guy. <laughs> no, he really is one of the nicest members. He's so nice. And he's, he does things that tick a lot of people off. Yeah. But I think the difference is, and just in their personalities. I've seen Rand Paul take similar stances on issues, but the reaction to those individuals is very, very different. And people, yeah. people really like him. And I, I think that's interesting about members of Congress because, you know, for, for my listeners, we realize that there's so much that goes on in Washington, DC, and it's not all just in the Twitter sphere. 
members of Congress also represent their own districts for the third district, right? Your third district in Kentucky. And in addition to doing all this big budget stuff, you have constituents that you represent. And tell me a little bit about the casework you've had to deal with over the past, over your time in Congress and major legislative accomplishments that you brought back to your district, because that's a major part of what members do. Yeah, well, for the first few years, we had earmarks. So <laughs> I was able to bring back a lot of a lot of stuff, not huge sums, because I was a, a, a relatively new member. But, you know, certain senior housing projects, we did several of those, uh, a, a bare a lot of equipment for the police department, those types of things. We, we made it our rule to never ask for a, an earmark for a, uh, a for-profit entity. Oh, wow, okay. So we, were, we only did it once, and that's because Department of Defense asked us to. Okay. Because the, we have a company here that tracks energy transmission, and, oh, wow. and they, do it, they do it on a commercial basis, but they're the best at it, so DOD wanted us to. Anyway, so we did that since then, um, you know, the, probably we got we got one major Hope Six project, and then we got whatever they called the successive program. And I got I basically the first one I got totally by myself the Hope Hope Six with the Obama administration, okay. and then which was probably ended up being a hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollar investment in a very depressed part of the community. Wow. So it's been it's probably in terms of impact on the community that's one thing and then getting money for a new VA hospital we're now the largest we have a project that that's the, the most expensive project on the VA's capital construction calendar wow and i got the first money for that and that it was funny because Mitch never wanted to deal with it but when i got the first money he got embarrassed so like i got 45 million dollars when Chet Edwards was uh, was it in the head of that appropriation subcommittee. Right. Chet did that for me. And then, so Mitch had added 30 million to it so he could get it. And since then we've been going back and forth, but that project's, that's a huge project. It won't have as much impact on the community, I think, as the Hope Six. But anyway, we, then we got this community, I forget what they call it now, community something, which is the same, was the successor to Hope Six. Okay. It was a, it was more than just housing. So they take an area of the community uh, that has public housing in it, right. tear all that down, and then do multi-use. They do replacement housing, modern housing, mixed use, so a mixed so mixed income. And then they do commercial space and parks and so forth to create a community feel rather than just the uh, physical residences. So those two, uh, <clears throat> that one's being, is under construction right now, which is a, wow. another $200, $200 million. So that's, that's that one category. On casework, I would say we're working on probably 300 cases at any one time. So they would break down probably a third immigration passports. Huh. Right. That whole category of stuff. A third benefits, either disability cases, right. Medicare, those types of things. And uh, the rest would be all kind of people who, are, who earned medals in battle and didn't get them and all sorts of miscellaneous stuff. How has COVID impacted your casework or has it? Not, like unemployment? not as much. Okay. Yeah. Unemployment. That's the one way it has. Okay. Um, yeah. And how optimistic are you that Congress will get a deal done this year on another stimulus bill? <laughs> for, for my listeners, the Congressman is sighing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am, I'm more hopeful than optimistic. You know, oh. you, you probably know this, but the, the problem we've had is, you know, we're not that far away apart in total dollars. Right. You know, and I think everybody, the public looks at it and says, well, they offered 1.8 and you were 2.2. That's pretty easy. It is, except the administration wanted basically a blank check. They didn't want to have it the use is stipulated clearly enough. And we were afraid, you know, that first tranche of the CARES Act where there was $500 billion for corporate aid and nobody knew what happened to it. Right. And we, I, we, still, we still don't know don't what know. happened. So that's what we were afraid of. So Nancy's position was, no, I mean, we could probably live with 1.8 trillion if we were able to stipulate where it went. And because we wanted to, we wanted to make sure there was a, 
there was business assistance for minority businesses that there was right. a set aside for that. They didn't want to do any of that. So again, I think a deal is pretty easy to make. Right. To be honest. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that Mitch will see that it's to his benefit uh, and to the benefit of a lot of his members whose citizens need the help. Right? To the senators up for re-election in 2022. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if you're, I think Bozeman's up, for instance, in oh, right. Arkansas. And, right. and the reason I mentioned him was because uh, Asa Hutchinson was on TV a few weeks ago talking about how much help Arkansas needed. That's right. So are there going to be those cross pressures, I think, that ultimately I'll get a deal done. Okay. Because it just... I don't, want to, I don't know how to phrase this in a way that doesn't make it sound like I'm telling you what to say, but do you think that it, it hurt those vulnerable Democrats running for re-election in the House to not come back with a deal? Because, I mean, I did talk to Abigail Spamberger before the election. She was one of my purples. <laughs> my, pur- mm-hmm. my purple lawmakers did very well. The, the interviews with them. But she was saying how important it is to get to her constituents. And for, for those other moderates she had come into Congress with in 2018, th- this was something they needed to show their districts, and they didn't get to do that. I mean, do you think that that impacted their races or not? I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it. You know, my... You know, I have a theory about why voters cast their votes. Okay. And <laughs> that would not fit into my theory. <laughs> I mean, my, my the, you know, that, and I've actually, because after that conference, caucus conference call Whoa. Uh, last, last week, I, I actually wrote, because Nancy had invited us to write our observations. And one of them was, you know, I think w- one of our problems is we think voters make decisions based on issues. Right. And they don't. Okay. I mean, 20% on either side of the spectrum do, and they're not persuadable, right? <laughs> yeah. The other 60% vote with their gut. It's visceral. I mean, that's my experience. And they want to know that you respect them and you understand the challenges that they have, that you, you're empathetic. And that's the first threshold of getting their vote. It's not whether you've got a 10-page climate program. I mean, it just isn't. And we'd like, you know, Democrats would like it to be that way, I right, think, right. Because, we, because we're great at policy, you know? Right. We, you guys have a lot of policies. Of, we think about, a lot about it. And we work hard at it. Uh, but that's not how people vote, the, the majority of people. And we're not very good at empathy, to be honest. The that's so interesting. The Democrats yeah. aren't as good at empathy, but you guys all pick all these issues that just tug at your heartstrings and make we have, Republicans we have, out. Have. They make Republicans out to be like heartless, and the Republicans are like, "What are they? Why? I'm not going to wheel my grandmother off the cliff." You know? I love my we, grandmother. We, yeah, we have the empathy. We just don't show it uh, well enough. That's, and instead, we'd rather say, "Hey, look what we're going to do for you." Right. And you know, and I think most voters. When you say that to them, say, yeah, you've been saying that for 50 years. That's never gotten done. No. And um, so if you, if you start with that premise that you don't worry so much about policy and you worry about showing people that you care about them, and that um, I think we do a lot better. So anyway, no, I don't think that had much to do with the election. And Trump, Trump had a had everything to do with the election and straight party ticking, ticket voting in a lot of places. That's why, Amy, that's why Amy McGrath got slaughtered here. That's why Josh Hicks w- ended up losing pretty decidedly to Andy Barr when there were polls actually showing him ahead. Right. Um, it, was, it was straight party voting. I, I, just, I think the, the results have been fascinating, but um, let's, just, let's just say for a second that Georgia, the people in their guts in Georgia, the guts in Georgia go for the Democrats. Let's just say that people are feeling Democratic and some, and the Senate does turn Democratic or at least can sway that way. There's, there's a term that's been floating around there before the election that actually worried a lot of Republicans, but they didn't really understand it. Reconciliation. <laughs> and I'm coming, I'm asking you about this because this is, this is what you, you've been writing policy papers on, as I understand. Explain yeah. a little bit about what reconciliation is. Break it down so that people understand what it means. Reconciliation is one way in which you can avoid 
the, the filibuster in the Senate. And reconciliation is you're reconciling certain portions of the budget. That's where the, the term came from. So you can only use reconciliation to either to balance the budget to, you can only use it for spending measures and you, or taxing measures. So you can't use it for policy matters. So we could not, for instance, um, well, I'm trying to think of one. Most things do involve revenues or expenditures one way or another, but there are some, some policy measures that you couldn't use it for. So the House would pass a, a budget resolution that include what are called reconciliation instructions. So we, okay. would instruct, we would instruct certain committees to either raise or uh, cut a certain amount. Okay. And we could use it for infrastructure. We could use it for, well, here's immigration. We probably could not use it for. There's, uh huh. I can see that. There's probably some aspects of immigration we could use it for, but the major, the big policy changes we couldn't. I don't think we could do it for Dreamers, for instance. Um, right. And so, and we can do one for revenue, one for one for expenditures, and one for revenue. So we could do a tax-specific reconciliation budget. And we could do one for spending. But basically, it's not unlimited. You get to, you get like two shots at this, like you said, sort of the yeah, tax side and, and, and the, the you know expenditure side. Right. So we could do two in uh, this budget year, mm-hmm. and then we could do two for uh, fiscal twenty-two. And what what policies would that be related to in particular? Affordable Care Act, changing the Affordable um, Care Act. It's possible, um, you know, that would be a leadership call, obviously. And, right. and I think part of what would be was, was still undecided if we if we had the opportunity to use it. Obviously, if we don't have a majority in the Senate and don't control the floor, we, it's moot. But right. was whether a relief package is passed or not, because if we didn't pass one, then we'd obviously uh, if we wanted to spend two or three trillion dollars. Right. Then we would probably have to use that reconciliation for that. Right, because otherwise it would have been filibustered in the other chamber. Right. That's really interesting. Um, you know, because I remember so, so that. So, so just what the Republicans passed their tax cuts in 2017 using re- reconciliation. We passed the final version of the ACA in 2010 using reconciliation. Right. So that's essentially how major legislation can get signed into law right. on both sides. And I think that Republicans that I've talked to also say, you know, that it was a mistake for them to not include more Democrats or not to to bring more Democrats along with their tax bill. In fact, who did I hear that from? I may have heard that from Ted Yoho, of all people, but but no, but that's, I'm wondering if one of the lessons, I know that you're saying that, that voters vote viscerally, you know, in their, but do they also look at Congress and say it's broken right now? I want people who are going to work together to get things done. You know, is that part yeah. of that visceral gut feeling uh, yes. And do, do you yes, think, I hear that. I hear that a lot. You do hear that a lot. And it sounds yeah. like your colleagues hear that a lot, too. And I'm just wondering what it's going to take to lessen this seeming divide that that is happening in Washington or tone down the Twitter sphere that seems to be <laughs> dominating everything in the media. And, and, you know, as a former, I mean, as a journalist, that, that what's happening in the media is one thing in the headlines and what's happening on the ground is is can be completely different a different story but you know it's it it's there's so many factors here there's a fundraising element to this that people who have to raise god in some of these races it was obscene in house races raising five ten million dollars well there are very few districts where you could raise that money in your district so you have to start calling big republican or democratic donors whichever party you're in in california or new york or florida and the only reason they're going to give you money is if they can count on you to be reliable partisan vote so fundraising has something to do with it. Obviously, primary challenges have a lot to do with it and, and the one party, the dominant one party districts that we have. So, and those all make it very difficult for people to compromise. And then the other side is nobody gets rewarded for compromising. <laughs> no, you know, if I, if I went and I said, oh, I, you know, aren't, aren't you all proud of me? I, I, I compromised with Thomas Massey on, you know, no, that would, they wouldn't appreciate that. So there are a lot of factors. But let me tell you one anecdote, which I, tells me that there's, there's an opportunity to do this. Okay. I, I, I love, I love anecdotes. Rob, yeah. I love Rob Woodall. He's on the budget committee with me. We've been on the budget committee together for a long time. I, I think we have a lot of mutual respect. 
we don't agree on much. So one, one day we're walking uh, back from the floor talking and we we're talking about some aspect of healthcare. Uh-huh. And I don't, don't even remember what it was, but he said, well, I think we need to do it this way. And I said, no, I don't think, I think there's a problem that we need to do it that way. And then we stopped and looked at each other and we said, you realize we just said the same thing. We just described it differently. We said the same thing. And that was kind of this epiphany that, yeah, there is possibility of doing something <laughs> sensible. Right. Well, no, that's, that's, that's huge. And I think it'd be nice to see more of that in Congress. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be as, as sexy and exciting, of course, as like AOC versus AAS, you know, but at the same time, just seeing people being able to work together across party lines at a time when things are supposed to supposedly so divided that that could resonate with voters. Obviously, it's not the people that are going to give you money necessarily, but you know that's an issue. Let me ask you a quick question about something you mentioned earlier, earmarks. The people I've talked to are saying, we need earmarks to come back. Are you an earmark proponent? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Tell me why. Uh, well, uh, two reasons. One is, I think we do need know more about what's needed in our district than, than bureaucrats. And earmarks you know with the proper controls on them which i think we had pretty much when we do it away with them you know you had to sign a uh, swear you didn't have any financial interest in the, the beneficiary of the earmark and uh, we had, i think we had appropriate controls on it and so it gives us the opportunity to actually accomplish something uh, it, again it, it takes away some of the power of bureaucrats and it, it also, I think, gives leadership um, another tool to kind of keep their members in line. And Well, but I mean, it's a compromise. Like, if, if you're going to make me take a tough vote on this and you want me to vote on this, how am I going to help people in my district? Let me help people in my, give me some, give me sort of a sweetener here. Exactly. And I, I just think it would make the, make the body run better. I think, I think, again, it might help it with bipartisanship because... You know, there was always an understanding that the majority got 60% and the minority got 40%, but the minority got something, didn't feel helpless, and they were treated with the same respect that other that the majority was. So, right. yeah, I think there, there are a lot of benefits from doing it. And I know, I don't think there's anybody in leadership that doesn't want to do it, who doesn't want to do it. I think it's nobody wants to walk the plank by themselves right now. Right. Well, when I, when I say walking the plank is our, our leaders – don't want to be the ones to go out and try to sell it to the public by themselves. I see. In other words, they, they want bipartisan, a bipartisan um, acceptance of it. I and see. so the public doesn't think that, it, that we're trying to sneak something by because we're in the majority. Right. And I, I think we would have felt the same way if, if we were in the minority. And I know that, that Stanny and Kevin have been talking about this and trying to figure out how to get it done. But, you know, the public has a, really doesn't have an understanding of what earmarks are. They, they think there's something underhanded about them. And, you know, it's, it's basically just uh, members of Congress having a say in where money goes. That's all it is, well, which it's, is it's, their constitutional responsibility. It's in the Constitution. <laughs> the pa- yeah, that's part of the reason that you're sent to Washington, to bring that, that money back to your district, because you know, like yeah. those projects you were mentioning earlier, you know, only you know that that Hope Six Center is needed or, or whatever it is, and you know yeah. where that money can go. And yes, there have been members who have broken the laws. And guess what? They're in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's right. you know, people... Yeah, just, there's so many just, watchdogs out there now. You don't, you can't get away. If you tried, you'd be an idiot. Well, exactly. And the thing is, is in in anyway, I I just you know with somebody like a Tom Cole on the Republican side who has been, <laughs> you got to get those appropriate Republican appropriators on it. You know, have them go make the case because yeah, Tom's one of my favorite people in the House. I I love Tom, and uh, he's a member of the Bourbon Caucus, so we've we've shared a bourbon from time to time. Well, actually, tell me. Okay, so tell me about the Bourbon Caucus in two respects. Number one, I know that it's bipartisan. What does it do? And number two, what's the importance of, uh, this is a congressional member organization, right? A CMO as they're called. So first of all, mm-hmm. what is your organization? Secondly, what do these CMOs do? Well, 
what happened was when my first year I was in Congress, um, Mike Thompson asked me to, he said, we've got a wine caucus event coming up. I'd like you to come to it. And I said, wine caucus, is there a bourbon caucus? And he said, I don't think so. I said, well, you know, bourbon is the only indigenous American spirit. So right. bourbon barrel to, back here. Bourbon barrel. Yes. Right. Very good. Yes. So we need, to, we need, you know, we ought to have one. So I, I created it. Um, Brett Guthrie was my co-chair. Mm -hmm. uh, now, mm -hmm. now Andy Barr is, but Brett was my co-chair to be, to begin with. And we got everybody in the delegation were members except Hal Rogers and, um, and Mitch. Hal um, Rogers wasn't a member. That's so strange. No, he said, he said he, he has too many churches that would frown on it. So in his district. So he's not, but he um, knows his district. Yeah. But we now have, I don't know, close to 40, 45 members, very bipartisan. So we, we have events to showcase the product, obviously. Right. And we, we have, you know, Congress-wide events, big events, a couple times a year. But then we do have issues that relate to bourbon. So we have taxing issues, mostly taxing, well, taxing, trade, and um, accounting issues. So right. one of the big issues that affects bourbon is whether you go to using the LIFO or FIFO accounting methods, and that's much too complicated to go in, but, but uh, a number of distillers who have used the, um, the LIFO method have enormous reserves that they would have to pay out. I mean, in the billions oh, of dollars. Wow. wow. And if you, if you did away with it, and it, it's not just bourbon that distillers who use that method, I mean, heavy equipment manufacturers do, cheese companies, they're, right. it's used by a lot of different uh, entities. Um, and anyway, so that's a big issue that comes up every time there's a tax bill, they want to do away with uh, LIFO right. and uh, so we fight that. And then, you know, we fought to get bourbon uh, taxed at the same rate as, as other spirits because it's taxed at a different rate, a much higher rate as, as say beer and beer and wine. And now is that because wasn't there also an issue with like small, uh, small craft distilleries craft and that and that affected like vodka as well, like the small batch vodka, tequila, or, or something exactly. like Tito's, things like that. So explain that, because that's where I really came to know the, the Bourbon Caucus as sort of a force, if you will. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, distilled spirits were subject to a, a, a high tax rate at the federal level, and they also are taxed fairly significantly at the state level. So you've got um, a, a disproportionate tax burden on on distillers versus again uh brewers of beer and and winemakers and that's you know we said that's not fair so <laughs> so we were able to get that changed on a temporary basis we're trying to get it uh changed so it's more equitable on a permanent basis we'll see if we win that battle <laughs> no, I mean, and that's something that, you know, it's made in America. These are small companies that are employing people in their, their locale, you know, their local uh, areas. Uh, I mean, I look at uh, in Virginia, for example, on the way to Charlottesville, because I go to Charlottesville a lot, the fifth district. And, but th there's a lot of different sort of like craft, there's like small batch brewers, there's small batch distillers there. I mean, there's a lot of people that are employing individuals. And now actually, incidentally, some of these people are starting to make hand sanitizer, but they have the means to do it, the equipment and everything. And it just sort of seems like, why are these people being taxed at a different rate that's prohibitive to business creation? And, that, and that's what changed our ability to get something done is that the, the proliferation of, of these craft distillers all over the country. So it wasn't just Kentucky uh, complaining about it. Uh, it's just about everywhere. Because most every other uh, liquor, uh, well, you mentioned Tito's, but most up until recently, most other distilled products were all imported. So scotch, scotch, gin, vodka, rum, right. tequila. And uh, so, yeah, so we, for a long time, it was just Kentucky was, that was complaining. But now, but now, that, and that's so interesting. And so it really helps having a, a, a congressional member organization like that behind it so that you guys can take action and i mean and there's so many of these member organizations there's the sportsman organization are you do you belong to any of the other ones oh i probably belong to 50 and, and most, most of them are most of them are really kind of symbolic they're not 
necessarily okay. proactive. They don't do anything. So you'll have, uh, let's say, the hemophilia caucus. Ah. So there'll be a specific caucus, and um, you know, there's a nursing caucus. There, and they they just want to have members who belong to the caucus to show support for their cause. Okay. But there's really not any. You know, they don't really get. They don't really meet. <laughs> And, Except uh, on the days that the national month, the monthly days or whatever, exactly. <laughs> the recognition days. Um, exactly. that, but you guys are really proactive. And so that's, that's really impressive. So, so what are you looking forward to this, these next few years in Congress? I mean, you, you <sighs> came in, you, you have an interesting history because you came in with sort of like the original majority makers right. in, in 2007. That was the 2006 election when, wasn't it the five for five, five for, or maybe that was different. Six for 06. Six, six, six for 06. 06. That's right. I had the postcard six for 06. And you guys came in and the Democrats took control from the Republicans after a long spate. And then you were there for a while. And then of course the Democrats lost and now the Democrats are back in power. So, so what are you looking forward to in the next few years and how do you kind of navigate your, <laughs> your congressional road path with so much sort of up and downedness? Well, one of the things that, that I want to do and is to change the way um, people think about the debt and deficits. Um, I'm sure you've heard about something called modern monetary theory. And a little bit. But okay, well, modern monetary theory, and I've not totally bought into it, but I'm, I'm close. Uh, but I, I believe that, that much of it is, is very accurate. That modern monetary theory says that if you, as a nation, uh, have a sovereign currency, which we do, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, put out, we make our own currency, we, right. we issue dollars, and that there is virtually no limit to what you can spend as long as you spend it in a way that doesn't create uh, dangerous inflation okay. or changes the exchange rate of your currency. And so, for instance, we've, we've essentially doubled the national debt in the last 12 years. Right. Uh, not essentially we have. <laughs> what, 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 we call, what we call the national debt, we've doubled that in the last 12 years. There's been no inflation in the country. Uh, we're, we're borrowing money at historically low interest rates, and our currency is the same it's been, as it's always been in line with other currencies in the world. So there's been no adverse economic impact to, to having that debt. And one of the proponents of, of modern monetary theory is a woman named Stephanie Kelton, and she's written a book called The Deficit Myth. Okay. And the deficit, and what she says is, don't think about that $26 trillion that some people call debt as debt. Think of it as that's what your government has invested in the country over the history of its life, minus taxes. Minus taxes. Okay. And the question is, well, and people like to say, because people always think of it in their own life experience terms. And when you, when you talk to people about that, they say, well, I couldn't run my business that way or I couldn't run my house that way. Mm -hmm. And when they do that, I say to them, well, if you could print your own money, you could, right? Whatever you needed to spend, you could just turn right. on them. And they say, well, of course. Well, that's where the United States is. We can do that. And we do it. Okay. Um, now, some of it we choose to pay interest on, that money. So, so we sell bonds. But we choose to do that. We don't have to do it. We could, the Fed could just, we could just pay the bills. We could pay all the government's bills. So what does that mean in terms of, of like moving forward? Does that mean it's okay to spend a lot of money or is it? Yeah, so that, that's kind of so what? The reason, the reason I feel strongly about this is whenever we do, we propose an initiative, whether uh -huh. it's housing, education, healthcare, you name it. Uh, Energy first policy. Question anybody, yeah, and first question anybody normally asks is, how can we pay for it? How do we pay for it? Right. That's the wrong question. The question <laughs> is, how important is it to our our country, how, how much good will it do for our country? I see. That's the first question you ask. And then if you say, yes, this is an important, you know, the relief package would be an example. Uh, how important is that relief package to the country right now, to our citizens and our state and local governments and so forth? And most people would say it's critical. Well, then the question is not whether how, how you pay for it. You do it and then you move on to the next thing. Now, there's certain things that there's certain things you would say that doesn't help anybody. 
you know, we don't need to spend money on that. Or you it know, doesn't help enough that, that people. Way about right. <laughs> or enough people, right. Or, they'll, or, you know, a lot of people say that about defense spending. It's not productive spending. There's no return right. on it. Well, unless you're in a war. Is, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, for better or worse, weapon systems create jobs and provide jobs. So that, that's money. Most of the money is going into our economy. But I don't want to get into that debate. No, 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 no. But, but, but what I, I take your point. So like, say for like energy, the, the, the green economy, this whole idea of this green economy, the more money that we spend in energy efficiency and, and building or, or investment in like efficient vehicles, that means the people who are making the efficient vehicles are going to have more business to do. They're going to be right. needing to hire more people. There's, you know, people who know solar panels. That means there's going to be a whole new area of industry sort of opening up. And this is like, an investment exactly. in that, in what could be returned eventually. Because all those people who get jobs exactly. are going to have to pay taxes, right? Exactly. <laughs> for better or for worse. But, and, you know, when we talk about things like PAYGO, I mean, PAYGO right. is, to me, in my opinion, is a disastrous policy. And I know it sounds good and people look at it and say, well, that's, it looks like we're active, acting responsibly that if we want to increase spending here, we got to find an offset. Right. Um, no, that's, that's, we can't operate that way. And so, so how much, much buy-in are you getting for that? You know, I, I think there are a lot of people who are becoming more and more familiar with it, who are, have begun to think differently. That's really what I want to do. I'm okay. not, I don't want, I'm not trying to get everybody to subscribe to modern monetary theory and take a pledge, right. uh, but I'm trying to change the thinking. And again, the order in which we approach it, different needs in the country. And right. so we have, we have, all sorts of deficits in this country. We have education deficit, healthcare deficit, housing deficit, you name it. Uh, and those deficits affect human beings. Our federal deficit, budget deficit, doesn't really, it's not because interest rates aren't going up. So people's mortgage rates aren't going up. And if they do, and it's possibly we would reach a point where it would, okay. then, then we make adjustments. But you know, people and the Republicans, primarily Republicans, like to say, oh, we're burdening, burdening our grandchildren with all this debt and our great grandchildren. And I said, we've been accumulating debt for 230 years in this country. Nobody's ever been asked to pay it off. You know, and I'm sure. When has it ever I'm, been I'm, paid off? <laughs> I'm sure when the, the national debt got to $100 million under Abraham Lincoln, uh, that people were saying, we're going to lay, we're putting this incredible burden on our grandchildren. And when it got to a billion dollars under Reagan, they were saying the same thing. Right. And, uh, but no, they'll, they'll never be, we'll never be asked to pay off the national debt because we are a sovereign nation and we don't need to. Yeah. I think that that's something that people don't really understand. Like when I hear the pundits, the pundits say, well, we owe all this money to China. And what, what are we going to do when they, they demand that we pay it back? I'm like, <laughs> I have no, are they going to do that? I mean, what does that really well, mean? So here's the situation. We, China holds about a trillion dollars worth of our bonds, maybe a little bit more than that mm -hmm. now, our treasuries. Um, and we pay them interest on it. Tomorrow, we could say, we're, we're buying back your bonds. And we would, we would push a button and they would then have a trillion dollars on account at the Fed. Okay. They could do whatever they want with it. They could leave it there. They could take it out. And so the Fed has another trillion dollars on its balance sheet, but that debt's paid off. We can do that tomorrow. We can do it with all of our debt. Right. Wow, that's we really just interesting. Choose, we just choose not to. And, you know, when we set up this mechanism with Social Security, because the balance, the, the, the largest segment of our debt is to Social Security. And we could do all sorts of things with Social Security, to change that picture of viability without, without making significant changes in the program. Because right now the law says that all benefits have to be paid out of the trust fund. Okay. We could change the law tomorrow. And then, <laughs> then, then we've solved the trust fund. Is that going to be a reconciliation? <laughs> well, then we've solved the trust fund problem. Well, that's right? true. Then, now, the problem with that is then social security spending becomes part of the political process, which is probably not ideal. But anyway, but we could do that. Um, we could change the interest rate that is paid on the bonds and where, where instead of, I don't know what, I think the rate's about 2% that, mm -hmm. that goes into the trust fund. We could make it 5 or 
And then the trust fund would be solvent. That's right, because then more people would want to get funds because you want you want the fa- the five percent return. Yeah. Anyway, so there there are all sorts of ways you could do it, and, and that's what I'm trying to get again. When I've talked to people and I've referred them to uh, Professor Kelton's book, and they they come back to me and say that has totally changed the way I've thought about this. Really? Now it's still that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to sell politically. But my first mission over the next couple of years is to again try to change the way the, the caucus thinks about those issues. Because, well, you know, I, there are a lot of people who would like to get away with, get, get rid of PAYGO. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, and the, debt ce- like the debt ceiling is another thing that if you think about debt in that way, then the debt ceiling is stupid. It, it's stupid anyway, because we never worry about it. But, right. I mean, we worry about it, but we never, we always raise it. Only when there's cliffs to jump off of, you know, those right. fiscal cliffs right. that, that end up being a pain in the neck. Um, finally, let me ask you one more question, just about right. what's going to happen at the end of the year, your, your prediction. Is there going to be a government shutdown? No. Okay. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any appetite for that. And there's no reason to be because we've already agreed on the top line numbers. We did that you know, for fiscal 20 and 21. And uh, so there's really nothing to, you can argue if you want to about how you split up all that money, but the money is the money. So I, I don't see why there's any, there's no need for a shutdown again, because there's no fundamental debate about how much we're going to spend. Even over the border wall or. Uh... Well, there are issues, there, you know, there are individual issues, you know, um, Sure, the border wall. The police reform uh, spending in the CJS bill, in the CJS bill? Yeah, yeah I mean, there, there are some policy questions that are going to be hard to resolve. But again, there are not that many of them that I think would justify the shutdown. Okay. Uh, again, I don't, think I don't think anybody wants to shut the government down. Not in the yeah. middle of a pand- pandemic, not with the economy as fragile as it is right now, um, right. <clears throat> not in a transition period. I mean, God, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> think of a worse time to shut the government down. You know, uh, th- this, these past few years I have been raucous. They've been up and down and up and down and kind of all over the place. And um, I, I kind of wonder what this new normal, if there will be a new normal or, if, or you know, yeah. moving forward. Well, you know, I'm, I'm praying like most people that the vaccine gets us back to some semblance of normality because even, even a week or so ago, I was talking with some of my colleagues and I said, you know, we've got, we're not going to be, this isn't going to be over for a while. We, we've got to actually talk to Nancy about going to remote voting because, you know, the fact that the, the situation is getting worse, right. who wants to travel back and forth? And we're, we're going to want to have a lot more votes over the next year than right. uh, we, we had during this, this last eight, nine months. Right. Um, but hopefully the, the vaccine will work and we right. can get it out to enough people soon enough. What, one more final, final question. Testing on Capitol Hill. What's your understanding of what's going to happen moving forward? Will there be more testing on Capitol Hill on the House side, at least for staffers, for members, for because you guys do come from so many different places to come back to, to D.C.? There's, there's a significant amount of pressure on leadership to, to uh, have mandatory testing that so far they have resisted. And um, uh, I, I'm kind of ambivalent about it. Um, I don't mind, but if, if you have to get tested every week when you get back, that's- in, Invasive. <laughs> and logistically, it, it would be difficult and difficult to enforce. And then right. you still have the same distancing and um, mask wearing. Um, I think we've handled it pretty responsibly so far mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the mechanics of the operation. But um, you know, if it doesn't get better soon, we're going to have to review all review all of those, including mandatory testing. Thank you so much for talking to me. I just love you. You're one of the friendliest, um, most open members to talk to. And it's just wonderful to hear, you know, what you've done for your district and what you're thinking about. Because, again, I just want to make Congress more accessible to people beyond the Beltway. People back in the third district, you know, people, what does the budget do? And and it's really great talking to members who are so open and and wanting to talk about it. So I truly appreciate it. 
Okay, Molly, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Congra- I hope your grandson is doing well. You're, how, how's that going? Uh, oh, he's amazing. 15 months old, and um, he's, he's walking everywhere now. Uh, he's very vocal. He doesn't, doesn't form words, but he's trying. We know he's trying to say something. <laughs> My sister had a, had a baby almost, you know, he, he's turning two, but he didn't start forming words. He was very vocal, but he didn't start until he was about 16 months, 17 months. And now he likes to say a lot of things, but mostly it involves trucks and golf balls. So <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. The, my son, who was uh, uh, very uh, precocious, when, actually, when he was 13 months old, I was uh-huh. driving him to daycare. And it was a rainy day and we were passing a golf course and he blurts out too rainy for golf. <laughs> and I almost had an accident because he had never formed it. That was his first coherent thought expressed. And I was like, what? <laughs> too rainy could for not, golf. Not, too rainy for golf. Could not believe it. <laughs> Did he play golf in his later years? Oh, he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's a really good golfer. He's a plus two handicap. He, oh, wow. Yeah, he's, he plays competitively. He was going to try to be a professional at one time because he was ranked as a junior player. He was ranked in, I think, as high as 68th in the country. Some point, wow. And was, was competing against a lot of the guys who are out there now. He's in I'll his be- mid, yeah, he just turned 37. So uh, and a lot of those guys he played against as a, as a kid. So he's still, ever, yeah, he still plays and loves it. Do you ever talk to Jim Jordan about that? Because Jim Jordan's daughter was his really daughter. Good. Yeah, we, we used to talk about his daughter a lot. How you yeah, did you both caddy for your kids? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We traded a lot of those stories. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you again, Congressman. And okay, today, definitely in D.C., it is too rainy for golf. <laughs> it's beautiful here right now. But I don't think I'm going to get out and play. We have a chairman's virtual chairman's meeting this afternoon. Oh, good luck. We'll have fun. I, I, I hope Thanks. you guys are going to figure out how to keep keep the troops calm. We need to. We need to. <laughs> Thank you again. Okay. Have a good one. Good. Bye. Great to see you. That was John Yarmouth of Kentucky's 3rd District. Make sure to pay extra attention the next time you watch him preside over a budget committee hearing. The gavel he wields is made out of old Woodford Reserve bourbon barrel, by an artist in his district. A big thank you to Christopher Schuler for making this interview happen. And thank you for listening to the show. Tony Mitri is our editor. Julian Soler produced the show. We have more lawmakers lined up for interviews, but I want to know who you'd like to hear chat with me on the show. You can message me on Twitter, at Molly Hooper, or at Article One Podcast, or email me at article one podcast at gmail.com. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. <laughs>